Matthew Schaefer. Thank you, brother. I enjoyed that quite a lot. Uh, I am curious about this comment that you, you made early on about what the scripture says in Elijah, literally from the Greek, and, and your thoughts on that expression. It's pretty interesting because um, let me see exactly here. The Jews are, yeah, the Jews did not um, they did not have chapters and verses in their Bibles. But they did have ways of locating passages quickly in the Old Testament. Uh, and what they did is they divided the scriptures into sections or paragraphs called parashah, or in Greek we might call that a pericope. But anyway, rather than numbering the sections, they gave them titles. Uh, and, they, and the titles described the content. And they were like uh, subheadings in our modern translations. So the passage in Elijah covers from 1 Kings 17 and 1 through 2 Kings 2 and 11. This same uh, method of location is observed also in Mark 12, 26, uh, when it talks about, have you not read in the burning bush passage? And that is said also by Luke in Luke 20 and verse 37. One of the interesting things about this to me is that uh, Bible students in Paul's day would have readily recognized this reference in Elijah and they would have immediately gone to uh, 1 Kings 17 and looked through that passage for what he was referring to. Uh, and this method of scripture location uh, may seem cumbersome to us because we're uh, oriented to uh, we're number oriented filing systems but it implies a readership that may have been more familiar with the scriptures than most people today think about this if the preacher that you're listening to is preaching and he mentions a passage of scripture according to the subheading in his new king james bible how quickly do you think you could find it now these people could find it and the reason they could find it is they were familiar with their scriptures uh, which is not my subject but it is a favorite one with me we need to be readers of God's word that is expected of us thanks for asking that I appreciate the study there uh, one, one thing that I kind of found interesting you mentioned it about verse 7 when they were, were blinded and that loud night night of mentions about that definition the hardening uh, of the eyes you know one of the things they cite is John 12:40 also uh, in the use of that that uh, terminology or that that meaning and I, I find you're going to emphasize uh, the point that that there was the opportunity to repent if they were if they wanted to be obedient because when you look at John 12:40 you see he's blinded their eyes but in verse 41 of John 12, you go on and you see where John <laughs> emphasizes the fact that they would have believed, but they kind of yielded to the Pharisees in verse 41. And the, 
therefore didn't obey. Right. So, Actually, sure. 42. But yes, that's exactly right. And as we go on in our study of Romans, this blinding, uh, hardening, is not intended to be permanent. Uh, there is the hope that a Jew, some Jews, or if it were possible, all Jews would accept and obey the gospel. But I will just mention this. Well, I don't have time to cover it today, but uh, in Romans 11, there is no expectation of any kind of mass conversion of Jews near the end of time or at any time. Uh, that there is no expectation of that and that is not discussed here at all what this is talking about number one is individual Jews and number two if they obey the gospel they're still welcome into the kingdom but they're going to have to uh, rid themselves of this hardening by accepting what the gospel says Todd Richardson Brother, really good um, mentioned God has destroyed the whole Jewish system and so and I broke that down and that, that's, that's right so I'm thinking about when exactly here's the reason why I asked the question when exactly was the Jewish system destroyed at the cross at the establishment of the church and the reason I ask is because and this is something that I I just I've seen, particularly in my study of the Book of Acts, here you have Paul after his conversion to Christianity, and others who would go into the temple on Sabbath, and of course they would preach the gospel. But there, it seemed to be take a while before the final ending of the Jewish system. Good question. Well, I think that typically in the Word of God, when there's a uh, a great change like this that there's a transition period to the end of one system the beginning of another for example when Israel comes out of Egypt on the outstretched arm of God the law is not given until 50 days later at Sinai and then there's the wilderness wandering period before they actually enter into the promised land and start becoming an actual nation uh, a landed nation anyway and I think you have that same kind of transition going on in the New Testament uh, Jesus coming into the world I suppose if you wanted to be well, I might need to think about this but I think if you wanted to be technically accurate the Jews mission was to bring the Messiah into the world and when they did then their mission was completed However, there's this transition period because Jesus needs to establish that he is the Son of God, uh, which he does through his ministry, through miraculous works, through the new and living way that he taught, the new kingdom doctrine that he taught. And then when he died on the cross, I suppose that would be one of the markers of the end of the Jewish system. And you have the establishment of the church, but you still needed the Jewish system. The church still needed the Jewish system to provide some transition time to become established as its own uh, institution and organization distinct from and separate and apart 
from the Jewish nation. And that, of course, well, for instance, they needed the synagogue system. That's what provided the opportunity to, pre to preach the gospel to the entire world in one generation of time. When they went to these cities and went to these synagogues, they had a ready opportunity, ready audience to preach the gospel. And besides that, by that time of the synagogue system, there's all these Gentiles of the gate hanging around who don't necessarily want to become proselytes to Judaism, but they're jaded with emperor worship and polytheism, and they do believe in one true and living God and generally believe in the moral lifestyle of the Jews. So they're hanging around, and it provides a ready audience to them. And so when Paul is kicked out of the synagogue, he moves next door to Justice's house to continue what he's doing. Well, that transition period is needed to provide the uh, fertile ground for the church to develop from its infancy to where it can stand on its own. And then you have the destruction of Jerusalem, which is almost certainly the final end of the Jewish system. Uh, as it was basically only a shell by then, because spiritually the the church was God's kingdom and had been for 30 some odd years. And yet, to some Jews, even after it remained in their hearts. Oh, yeah. And in a way, the spirit of it to some and to all who will not accept the gospel, that same spirit of disbelief remains today. That's what Paul is talking yes. about right here. And one of the things that this does bring up uh, is the fact that what is happening in Israel today, tomorrow, next week, a year from now, or a hundred years from now, has nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing to do with the Bible. The people who live in Israel are not God's people, and they haven't been for a long time, and God is no more interested in what is happening in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv today than he is what's happening in Oklahoma City. Now he's not less interested, but he's no more interested in what's going on there than he is here. Because Israel performed their service, and when they performed their service, God was finished with the nation, whether all of them believed or none of them believed. Uh, but there was this transition period. Wait a minute. His father's not Richard Bunner. Oh, Jonathan Bunner. I'm sorry. You're right. I was thinking of Jonathan Edwards. All right. All right. And he said, you know, God has predestined the man, the plan, not the man. Uh huh. That's a very simple way to put it. And my question is, when you look at Second Timothy chapter two, it says here in verse four, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to him to do his will. And in this passage of scripture, Paul is he's telling Timothy, hey, you know what? Be careful about getting into disputes, things that are waste of time. And then it goes on to say that if perhaps God will grant them repentance, that they may come to their senses. And so my question is, 
Is that one of the same in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, when Paul is speaking to Lydia? And then it says there that God opened her heart, that she may receive those things that he was teaching. How, how you, know, you know, you've been talking about this hardness of heart, and God opening the heart. How, well, does that play somehow in this? I think the answer is yes to your question. Uh, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, uh, the conditionality, the if of that, is whether or not they will turn and accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus. It's not some uh, unlikelihood that, you know, if someone repented and obeyed the gospel, God might not forgive them, or he might. Uh, because his will is not capricious. The if he will perhaps grant them repentance is based upon whether or not they would accept the gospel. Uh, and the opening of Lydia's heart was also based upon her reception of what Paul and Silas preached. Uh, it wasn't something where God liked Lydia better than other women and gave her a special opportunity. And a question I wanted to track from the conversation, so you know, feel free to push it off if need be. Um, I agree with as far as what takes place in Israel with those people nowadays doesn't have anything to matter to do with that. Um, in the vein of Galatians 6-7 with God not being mocked, I wonder about some of the events that transpired in the last five years, such as the dedication of a new temple shekel, the trying to outline, putting the Levitical priest back in line, and, well, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about exactly. However, I will say dispensational premillennialists expect the Old Testament system to be reinstated. They expect the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem uh, on the old temple site, even though there is a mosque on it now and they expect Sabbath day worship to be reinstituted, they expect animal sacrifice to be reinstituted, they expect the Levitical priesthood to be reestablished, they expect every uh, saved person on earth to go to Jerusalem every Sabbath, etc., etc. This position is false and it's absurd. And my question is, in response to those people that are pointing to the events, transpiring nowadays as their evidence is to this, how do you refute the fact that I would believe that this is just a deception being organized in whatever manner for control? Well, I think that's probably another subject for another time. Uh, dispensational premillennialism is uh, based on a misinterpretation of four or five verses in Revelation 20 and a reinterpretation of the entire Bible based upon that misinterpretation and so it would take a while to prove all that but I think it can be proved Could I go, let, let me just answer something if I can just, just for your benefit brother David Griffin in the last session mentioned to be to be careful what you read and you know sometimes you pick up articles maybe you see something on the internet or you see something and it's got some sensational story uh, 
But if you if you check that out, it's not true. Now, I, I can tell you for a fact because Brother Mike Miller and and I uh, and Jake we were we were in Israel within the last five years. None of what you're saying is going on there. So that's that's just a bunch of bogus that uh, that you picked up someplace. And uh, so I think we need to be careful. We read stories sometimes that that have been written by some sensationalist that is wanting to to get some followers, but it's not true. And uh, so uh, it's easy. It's easy for any of us to be duped. Sometimes we'll read something and somebody tells something, but there there's no factual basis for it. Okay, Doug Edwards. I'd like to ask two questions. Is that okay? Yeah. I'll tell you whether it's okay or not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> First of all, I'll say it's very good. Appreciate it. Um, Thank you. And I have a short-term memory, and I, I can't remember, you know, from the past very much about maybe what you said or, or other brethren have said. So kind of refresh my memory on that Romans 9 and verse 6. They're not all Israel that are Israel. And Paul says that, is he referring to what we consider the Christian age, physical Jews and spiritual Israel? Or is he referring to the Old Testament or both? Well, I think the direct reference is to the Old Testament. And he's referring to the fact that not every physical descendant of uh, Israel or uh, Jacob is part of Israel. Uh, they are not all Israel who are of Israel would uh, automatically exclude Esau and all of all of his. Uh, and also, not all Israel were true Israelites, as in part of the remnant, the faithful remnant. But I think that right here is where you see the, there, I think there's another thread going along underneath this that doesn't really come to the surface until verse 22 to 29, uh, which is, he's using the fact that not every descendant of, of uh, Israel is a true Israelite as far as the Old Testament system is concerned to illustrate that that is also spiritually true. And, but the spiritual part of it, the, the argument is not really developed until later in chapter 9 after the discussion about Pharaoh and so on. Okay, my second question I want to ask is based on this transition period that you talked about. And I find that really interesting too, trying to understand the birth of Christ, death on the cross, the establishment of the church, with what seems to be a continuation, you know, for a short period of time of Judaism. Now, with that thought in mind, there's a passage I want to ask you about, and I almost hesitate to do it because it's not your topic. But I can defend myself about that. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. But it's Hebrews 8, verse 13. 
says in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Is that referring to this transitional period? Let me find Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, 13. Well, I'll hazard it. I think so. I think it is probably this transitional period. Is, is he referring to the old covenant here? No, I don't think so. I think, I think, I don't know if this helps, but when Jesus died on the cross, and the church was established shortly thereafter. Uh, in order to be saved, any Jew, and then in a short while, any Gentile, when the gospel was preached to Cornelius and the door was opened, to be saved had to believe and obey the gospel. You couldn't be saved uh, by continuing in the uh, Jewish system of worship uh, after that. However, the shell of Judaism remained. And I think that what is being said in Hebrews 8 is that even the shell is growing obsolete and is about to be taken away. That is the government, and it's a reference probably ultimately to the destruction of Jerusalem. Or at least that's, I don't know if it's referring, you know, saying this Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not a prophecy exactly, but I think it's just saying the shell of Judaism is going to be taken away completely. But now that's off the cuff. If somebody in the room knows better, that's raise your hand. Okay. What do you think about it, Doug? What you said sounds good to me. Okay. George Batty. I would just make a comment uh, about Doug's question there on Hebrews 8 verse 13 in that he says a new covenant that's, that's a reference to Jeremiah 31 he's made the first obsolete now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away in other words in Jeremiah's day when Jeremiah gave that prophecy the Old Testament was becoming obsolete, growing old, and was ready to vanish away in Jeremiah's day. And it did uh, vanish away at the cross. That's my understanding. Is he's he's uh, making this statement from the viewpoint of Jeremiah. Okay. Do you have any closing comments? No. I look forward to being able to continue this discussion next year. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this section on Romans 9 through 11 is I didn't understand it very well, and I think maybe uh, we need to have some discussion about that, and, and we've kind of reached the critical point of, of it in the next two or three sections of chapter 11. But anyway, thank you very much.